0: We've made it to Mark 10. Good morning, Missio. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And they were astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands. For my sake, for for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. But taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And (laughs) Right. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those, or for, it is for, those to, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to, him, to them,
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It does deserve, like, a real serious round of applause. That is so much text. I mean, it's good. I'm not complaining. And you do such a good job. You deserve that round of applause, man. A few years ago, um, in a little town called Hof, Germany... A little, like, <laughs> you just never know. You know what I mean? Like, you just never know. That's what I've learned doing church. You never know who's here. All right, so in a little town great, uh, called Half Germany, a little church was cleaning its artwork, and they found a very peculiar piece of art. Now, I don't know if you can tell who the characters in this painting are. In the middle is a, a very strange but a picture of Jesus and then on his left side on my like right side right now there is a portrait of Adolf Hitler Now the picture when it was found caused a ton of controversy obviously because this little church was holding on to this piece of art and as historians began to track down like well where does this piece of art come from and when did the piece of art get developed all of the work that we could find is that it was developed in 1939, just right when Hitler is at the height of his power. He's about to invade Poland, and most of Germany is with him, including the vast majority of Christians in Germany. Now, if you know your German history and your history of World War II, then you know that there is Christian communities and Christian movements that stand in opposition to Hitler. You have the Barman Declaration, where people like uh, Karl Barth or Dietrich Bonhoeffer try to say no. You have the Confessing Church, which tries to say no. But the vast majority of Christians in Germany, pre-World War II, are for Hitler. And what this piece of art shows is how true that was. How melded together in the story of faith and religious practice was the politics of hate that ran Nazi Germany. And if you're looking for like a theological message from this piece of art, I don't think it would be hard to find. It's that Jesus is with the powerful. Is that Jesus is actually endorsing what the Nazis were doing, that Jesus is not only with his people, but he is for his people in that way. The theology of this art is that Jesus is with the powerful. Now, I want to contrast that to a different piece of art that comes from a very similar moment, but a different world altogether. This piece of art comes from the Harlem Renaissance by a black artist named Aaron Douglas. And if you just contrast the characters of this piece of art to the previous one, you have who is carrying the cross. Well, in this moment, it's actually not Jesus. Jesus is down in front. And the person who's carrying the cross is Simon of Cyrene, who in the story of the gospel is an African who is forced to carry Jesus' cross for Jesus when he is no longer able to. Now, if you think about the moment that that's coming from, the Harlem Renaissance, 1920 United States, 1930 United States, the theology of this picture stands in hard contrast to the theology of the other picture. If in the other piece of art, God is with the powerful, he is with the oppressive, he is with the, the regimes of might and hate, this piece of art stands is such a solid, strong protest to that to say that actually Jesus identifies most with those who are suffering. Jesus identifies most with those who are poor. Jesus identifies most with those who are oppressed. I love this piece of art for another reason, because we're in the Gospel of Mark, and a lot of scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is written to Simon of Cyrene's family in Rome. So he's a person who is called into the story of Jesus, forced to suffer with Jesus, and then some scholars believe that this story is actually being written to his family, to people who are intimately familiar with what it means to suffer with Christ. If you put those two images next to each other in your head, they offer two different pictures or two different stories or two different options. I feel like that are so often available for us as followers of Jesus. Two stories that also run throughout the book of Mark. On the one hand, you have a picture of Jesus that says that Jesus is with the powerful. On the other, you have a picture of Jesus that says that he is uniquely with the the weak. In one image, you have Jesus endorsing. In the other one, you have Jesus critiquing. In one, you have an image of Jesus that is celebrating the way of the world. And then in the other, you have an image that's celebrating the way of the cross. Those two notions or ideas are always a challenge for us. Which way do we celebrate? Which way do we choose? Which way do we follow? Do we follow the way of comfort and safety, or do we follow the way of the cross? Do we follow the way of power and prestige, or do we follow the way of the cross? Do we follow the way of personal agenda, or do we follow the way of the cross? These are the central questions that are actually running throughout Mark chapter 10, because you have these stories that are kind of like this two photos, that one presents one option, one way, and then it is confronted by a different way or a different option or a different story. So you have the way of the world, and then it is confronted with the way of Jesus over and over again in these different stories, these little vignettes that make up Mark chapter 10. And the question that we're asking, and the question that the the readers of Mark, the family of Simon of Cyrene would have been asking is, okay, what do we do with this? Which way do we choose? The way of Jesus or the way of the world? The way of Jesus or the way of the world? The way of comfort or the way of the cross? So if you're looking at Mark chapter 10, In the very beginning of this passage, in the very first moment, Jesus begins to teach the people a posture that is very familiar to Jesus. And a group of religious leaders come up to him, and they come to test him, it says. So they ask this question in verse 2, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the reason it's a test is because they're asking Jesus to weigh in on a very hotly debated subject. Because if you're reading the Old Testament, Moses wrote that a man could divorce his wife in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, if she does something objectionable. So that's the trick here. Moses said, if somebody did something objectionable, a man could divorce his wife. So then what happens throughout history is that rabbis begin to debate, well, what does it mean to do something objectionable? So you have like a conservative rabbi would say, well, objectionable is only infidelity. But also a popular school of thought is objectionable means if she does something that displeases her husband. And then another school of thought is that it is objectionable if simply a man finds a woman who is more beautiful than his wife. These are all actually pretty common. So common, in fact, that one of the Jewish historians, Josephus, just randomly writes, he was like, you know, she displeased me, so I divorced my wife. So it's actually like a common way of thinking in this moment. There's these different schools of thought, and they are asking Jesus to weigh in. Because if Jesus has an opinion about one of these things, he shows his allegiance. So what does Jesus do instead? Well, he doesn't engage in it at all. Instead, he blows up the entire conversation and says, Moses allowed this to be true because of your hardness of heart meaning that the religious leaders have started to use something to achieve their own personal agenda. But you have a moment in the text, and they have ignored whatever the spirit of the text is, whatever the intention of God's way is, and they are now using it as like a leverage to get what they want, which is always the way of the world. It is to use the things of God for its own purposes to use the things of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus or the way of Scripture for its own purposes. And we actually see this begin to play out in every one of these little stories throughout Mark 10. If you go to Mark 10, verse 17, you have a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus responded, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's a weird moment, unless we remember that Jesus is God. And so, what Jesus is doing in this moment is, He's like, Hey, I am not simply a teacher. So I will not simply be pardoned to you using me for your own personal achievement. I will not just be here for enlightenment or education. I'm actually going to call you into something. And that gets proven out because the rich young ruler refuses to be called into what Jesus is inviting him into. He is not interested in the way of Jesus. He's interested in using Jesus. And again, we see it happen with the disciples in verse 35. James and John, they come to Jesus. And they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So unlike the previous examples, he's the most honest in this moment. Do for us whatever you want. Jesus asks, well, what is it? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So disciples are asking for positions of privilege and power and authority. They're asking that Jesus uses his kingdom for their own ends, their own intentions. So what's happening at each one of these moments that people are asking Jesus to fulfill their own purposes. They're trying to absorb Jesus into their personal agenda. We see it happen with Nazi Germany and their politics. We see it happen with the rich young ruler. We see it happen with the disciples. And the truth is, is, we do the same thing all the time. We try to absorb Jesus into our personal agenda. We try to make Jesus a tool of our own politics. try to make Jesus a way to win an argument. We try to make the way of Jesus a way to keep ourselves distant and safe from others. That is always the way of the world. It is to use Jesus for its own personal agenda. But Jesus will not be used. And so in each one of these moments, Jesus reveals what the people are trying to do. So for the leaders, he names their hardness of heart. For the young ruler, he names that he loves his wealth and his power more. And then to the disciples, he says this, he reveals their desires by inviting them to drink his cup. And the next moment you'll see Jesus use that language, if we don't know what cup is, is when he's describing his own suffering of the cross when he asks his father to remove the cup from if he can't. So for Jesus, the cup is, is it's, it's a metaphor or an image of choosing the way of the cross. And as we've seen throughout Mark, that the cross it is, a, it is a symbol of sacrificial love and submission to God's way. And so in inviting the disciples to the cross, what he's forcing them to do is to ask, well, what is it that we actually want? Do we as the followers of Jesus, do we long for power or prestige or performance or authority? Do we long for something So then we use Jesus and absorb him into our own story, or are we actually willing to submit ourselves and our lives to the way of the cross, the way of sacrificial love? Will you drink my cup? Will you be baptized in my baptism? That's why Jesus will say, before you follow me, you need to count the cost. Before you build a tower, you need to know how much it costs to do so. Before you go to war, you have to uh, estimate... The casualties, before you enter into this conversation, you have to ask yourself a question of what do you actually want? Do you want to absorb Jesus into your own personal agenda, or do you want to submit your life to the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross? The way of sacrificial suffering. The cross always reveals our true desires because it requires us to count the cost. And it refuses to let us use Jesus. The only question is whether or not we're willing to submit to Jesus. So the world uses Jesus. It wants to use him, absorb him. The way of Jesus is submission to the cross. But the world does not just simply use Jesus. The way of the world is also always about using others. So if you go back to the beginning of Mark chapter ten, the question on the table is one of divorce. And what's interesting as you're having this conversation amongst the religious leaders, it's a bunch of dudes come to Jesus, a dude. They're like, "Hey, dude, can we divorce our wives?" And there was somebody like obviously absent from that conversation. Women. And there's an equation that is obviously not being included, which is what is the cost that women have to pay? Because even in the most conservative estimate, which is it's only for infidelity, the conversation all puts the weight on the women in the family. It says they have to bear all of the cost. And the reason that is true is because in the ancient world, women are viewed as the property legally of men. So are children, so are possessions, all of the different examples that are running throughout the story, which is interesting but right? the world sees people as possessions to use for its own personal agenda so it's going to use Jesus for its own personal agenda and then it's going to also use people for its own personal agenda pawns to achieve whatever it is that we want same thing happens in the next moment actually with the story of the children You have these children that are coming to Jesus, they are being sent to Jesus, and the disciples see that this is happening, and they rebuke the children. They're like, no, you don't have a place here, and try to send them away. And when Jesus sees this, he becomes indignant. But similar to how women are perceived in the ancient world, children in the ancient world, they are valuable in that they are a possession that will grow into use. They don't, in the context, have any use. And so the disciples are like, why would we allow them to come to Jesus? They bring nothing of value to this moment. They are not yet useful. They will be someday, but they are not yet useful. So rebuke them, hold them back. They have no use. They are something to be used later. Same thing happens in the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus challenges him to give up all he has to the poor and follow him, but he can't because he loves his own prestige and his power and his possession more than he loves the people around him. And again, the same thing happens in the story of the disciples. James and John, they secretly approach Jesus away from the other ten, and they ask him for power. They don't care what happens to the other disciples, which is why the ten are so indignant when they hear what James and John have done. That is the way of the world. And it stands in stark contrast to the way of Jesus. The way of the world uses and discards people. Even with the best of intentions, we use and discard people. But Jesus refuses. In the first story, Jesus responds to the religious leaders, not by having a conversation about divorce, not by having a conversation about like, the intricacies of Mosaic law. Instead, he goes to Genesis and he says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, which is evoking that God made both image bearers. And so the critique that he's leveling is he's like, oh, you've totally forgotten the intention of this law, which is that everybody in this equation is intended to be treated like human beings who are then entering into like a mutual relationship of oneness. Like that's actually what you have forgotten, is that there is people in this equation who are representatives of God, who bear his image, who have value and weightiness. Jesus is like, I'm not interested in playing a game that uses people because people are image bearers. You're not allowed to forget them. You're not allowed to write them off. Said God reminds them of his word. It's the same reason that he becomes indignant when children are being kept from them. His response in that moment is that to them belongs the kingdom. What, what, what statement could you make that would elevate the status of children more than that moment? To them belongs all of the political entrapments of Jesus' work. To them belongs the authority that you long for. To them belongs the glory that you are asking for. To these children that you are refusing to come to me to them belong the kingdom and you actually need to become like them. You don't get to use them, you don't get to discard them, you don't get to keep them away from me. You need to actually be like them. And when the rich young ruler refuses to give his possessions to the poor, Jesus says it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then when the disciples Jesus most, like, lengthy conversation, and he says this. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord their authority over them. And their great ones exercise authority. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be what? Slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In each moment that the way of the world uses people or discards people or says that they can be just pawns for personal agenda, Jesus confronts it. And to his disciples, to the church, he calls them into a fundamentally different way of being. Not a way of power over or against but of a life of sacrificial service too. Not a way that looks like the world, but one that looks like Jesus' life. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, whether the world uses people and discards people, well, Jesus calls us to serve people. Sacrificially, the same way that Jesus did. Now, the interesting thing about each of these stories is that there is an implicit belief in each of these stories about who God blesses, who God is with, who God shows favor on. So, in the first, it's religious men. The second, it's adults over children. In the third, it's the successful. In the fourth, it's the faithful disciples. But as you're reading those stories, you see that in each of those moments, Jesus confronts those people, and he does not give them what they ask for. They all come to Jesus looking for something, looking for some kind of validation or some kind of support or some kind of endorsement. And every single moment, Jesus confronts them. They don't get to be heroes of this story, not the disciples, not the rich young ruler, But Mark ends this chapter with another story, and one that, well, again, it seems so opposite the previous stories, and that is deliberate. In Mark 10, verse 46, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jericho. They're on their way towards Jerusalem for Jesus to endure the way of the cross. And as they're moving towards Jerusalem, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus begins to cry out to them, yelling, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Like the children before, he is rebuked, kept away from Jesus, because he brings nothing of value to this moment. He has no use, no wealth. So he's rebuked and discarded, but he refuses to be silent and he continues to yell, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him, stops and says, call him. And the text goes on to say, and Bartimaeus threw off his cloak. He sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, Bartimaeus recovered his sight and followed him on his way. Mark includes this story because it is a challenge to all of the previous stories. Bartimaeus is literally the opposite of everyone who's come before this moment. He unlike everyone else, gets who Jesus is. He doesn't try to use him. He doesn't try to manipulate him. He doesn't try to absorb him into his own agenda. Instead, Bartimaeus just says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a reference to Jesus' kingship. King of heaven, king of the world, creator of all things. Like, I know who you are. Have mercy on me. That's a posture of submission and humility, not control or absorption. Bartimaeus is uninterested in trying to control and use him. Instead, he submits himself entirely and simply cries for mercy. Bartimaeus owns basically nothing. He's a blind beggar. But at the call of Jesus, he immediately, without concern, throws off his cloak, leaving it behind to follow Jesus. Right, Each of these moments, he's contradicting the stories before. And it's not because he is awesome or powerful, because he isn't. But it's because he is the only person in this story who takes on the posture of little children. Humble, weak, and trusting. And thus, in that posture, he receives the kingdom of heaven. And it's called blessed. There's a theologian I've been reading this week who's, has this quote that I think brilliantly sums this up. Her name is Simone Vey, and she says, Grace is the law of descending movement. I love that. Grace is the law of descending movement. To lower oneself is to rise in the domain of moral gravity. Moral gravity makes us fall towards the heights. I love that. Grace is falling towards the heights. This is always the way of Jesus in the Gospels. It is the practice of lowering oneself, of falling towards new heights. The way of the world is always up and more, which is why the disciples are so amazed at the story of the rich young ruler. He comes and Jesus says, he, the rich young ruler leaves disappointed, and the disciples are amazed by that because in their mindset, up and more always indicates who God blesses, who God is with, who God is present to. That is the way our story works, the way the narrative of the world is, that if you move up, you are blessed. And in a way, he is blessed, in the way of the world. But in the story of Jesus, it is blind Bartimaeus who is called blessed, the one who is already low and was willing to lower himself even further. And so, Missy, the question for us is, As we read the story of Mark chapter 10, who are we in this story? How do we often approach the the person of Jesus? Are we like the religious leaders who are trying to manipulate the law in order to achieve our own agenda? Are we the rich young ruler who's too convinced that we have it together to actually submit ourselves to the way of Jesus? Are we, the, are we like the disciples who are actually refusing to allow children to enter in because we don't know their use or their value? Are we like the disciples and that we're in this thing for power and prestige or authority or some other kind of personal thing? Who are we in the story of Mark 10? How are we attempting to use God for our own purposes? Where do we need to submit ourselves to the way of the cross to have it reveal our own false desires and our own false like, agendas that we bring into this? How do we use others for our purposes? Or how do we write them off altogether? Who do we believe doesn't have a place here? Not necessarily because we don't think they're good or bad, but because we don't even know that we know their value. Who are the people that we say are valuable? Or do we need to serve? Begin to affirm that others are image bearers? Where are we trying to continue climbing up, moving up higher for more? Or where do we need to receive grace? Just falling to new heights. I think most of us in the story probably come. You know, different moments and different places in the story of Mark 10. This is one of the reasons I love the way that Jesus engages with the rich young ruler. Because I think that's often the person I identify with in the story. It's like a person who, if I'm honest with myself, I believe that I have a lot together. And I think that stops me from entering into Jesus. I'm blinded by all the things that I have and the ways I have it together. So I miss how desperate I am for Jesus. I miss the life that Jesus is calling into. And the good news is that Jesus is calling all of us to receive mercy. In the story of the rich young ruler, he looks at him and it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I feel like I just need to know that. That no matter where you're coming from in this room, no matter who you identify with the story, Jesus looks at you and he loves you. And he gave his life as a ransom for you. The question is not whether Jesus is moving towards you. It's not whether Jesus is welcoming you to the table. The question is not whether Jesus affirms your humanity. Those are all true. The question is whether or not you are willing to receive those things. Like the rich young ruler, are we too caught up in what we have? Or are we like blind Bartimaeus who knows we literally bring nothing? So that's the final question, you, is that today, as in every day, will you respond to Jesus' invitation to his table? To receive what it is that he's offering you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that no matter who we are in this room, no matter where we come from, no matter what our experiences, no matter how we see ourselves, You look at us and you say, I love you. And no matter who we are, you call us into you to receive mercy, to know your grace, to be welcomed at your table. So as we hear that story, as we hear that news again and again and again, would you help us receive it? To be like children, to receive in a posture of humility and grace, naming our own poverty, so that we receive the abundance of you. God, lead us home. In your name we pray. Amen. Mister, we're going to continue worshiping Jesus together as a family. When you're ready, we invite you to the table. Some of the bread is gluten-free, some of it's dairy-free, some of it's egg-free. If you need to receive the good news of Jesus, we invite you to the table. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, there'll be people over here who'd love to pray with you. And regardless, would you worship with us?